So this morning, John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse number 22. I want to read the passage. Please listen intently. I'm not going to reread the first section again uh, because uh, we're going we're to sort of skip over a little bit. I'm going to summarize the first part of this, uh, which is the setting. So we're not going to dive too deep into that. John chapter 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let us pray. Father, as we turn to your word this morning and as I seek to be faithful to proclaim your word and to make application for our body here at Fisherville, I pray, Lord, that you will be with me to speak truth, uh, to speak truth in love, to be um, faithful to your text. And, Lord, that you will prepare and how already have prepared. Lord, we know that you've known this for many decades in advance that we would be here in this moment today to hear this passage today. And so I pray, Lord, that your work and your will will be done this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This passage, in its larger context, chapter 5 through 7 of John, is showing a growing response of unbelief and opposition toward Jesus. As we'll see today, unbelief and opposition are primarily directed at Jesus' identity. Not the things that he does, but who he is. If you'll remember from chapter 5, the reason that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus was because he made himself to be equal with God. I'm concerned today that in our world of growing 
unbelief and opposition toward Jesus and the things of God, that we will see some people who claim Christ, claim to be Christians, that will turn away from the faith. In John chapter 6, verse 66, we actually see this happens in this passage later. This is what is told to us in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. True believers cannot lose their salvation. We know that. We know that he is the one who holds us. He is the one who saved us, and he is the one who will keep us. However, those who are deceived and those who are pretending, they will turn from the Lord if they do not come to a saving knowledge of the Lord himself. And I believe that in our context and in our world today, with the world going away from the things of God, we will see more and more of the people of God who claim to know him turn from him. So I have two reasons and purposes for this morning. One, for those who who are seeking to know and do not know if you are faithfully walking with Christ or not, this is a call to continual repentance and faith in Jesus. For those of you who are walking with the Lord, that know that he is your only hope forevermore, for you it is a call to perseverance. It is a call to continue to walk this walk with him. What I hope you're going to understand from our time together today is that Jesus is the bread that endures to eternal life, which is more than sufficient for our lives today. We're going to look at three points. I've got three points. Good Baptist preacher. But the first one is really short. So don't think my sermon's going to be 15 minutes long when we get through with the first one. Okay, the first one is about the setting of the passage so that we understand what is going on. And then the other two are about this discussion between the crowd and Jesus. And that's where we're really going to see um, some enjoyable text today. So the first point today is the crowd seeks Jesus for bread. The crowd seeks Jesus for bread. This is verses 22 to 24. Now John's desire here in this passage, 22 to 24, is to give us some important uh, information about the setting of what is going on before we get to that passage about where the crowds have this discussion with Jesus. The day before our text, the day before is when Jesus had fed all of them on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He had fed them 5,000 men plus women and children. Now the crowds, uh, these crowds, they wake up the next morning and Jesus is not there. But they're a little confused and the reason is because they know that there was only one boat. And Jesus' disciples got in the boat, but they knew that Jesus had not gone with them. They take off in the boat and they left, and they obviously knew that they, he was going, that they were going to Capernaum. But when they wake up the next morning, Jesus is also gone. 
So they're confused. They don't understand what has happened. Where did Jesus go? Little did they know that he had walked across the Sea of Galilee to go with his disciples to teach them something himself. But when he got across, uh, once they got across the Sea of Galilee and, and all of that, we look at these people and they're, 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 they're confused. And so what do they do? Well, some other boats from Tiberias, they come and they, they come in there to the, to the shore. And so these people, they get on the boats that are there and they, they, head to, they head to Capernaum where they think, well, they know that Jesus' disciples went there. They think, well, maybe Jesus went too. They were right. These people had just witnessed Jesus do a miracle of feeding them from two fishes and five loaves. Now they're seeking Jesus, which sounds and looks like a really good thing. But what we're going to see in our text today is that these people were seeking Jesus, but they were not seeking Jesus for the right reason. They were seeking him for the bread that perishes. So let's turn to the discussion now uh, between the crowd and Jesus when they find Jesus at Capernaum. This is point two. Seek Jesus for the one right reason. Seek Jesus for the one right reason. Verses 25 to 29. Look with me in verse number 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This crowd is obviously confused. They're wondering, how in the world did you get here, Jesus? This doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. We, only, we know there was only one boat and you did not go on it. How did you get here? There's no way you could have walked around. <clears throat> well, the problem is that we see here they are addressing Jesus with a term that should tell us something. They address him by the term rabbi. And the term rabbi, which is, was a common term for, the, for our recognized teachers of that day. Now, there's nothing wrong with these crowds calling Jesus rabbi, calling him teacher, for he was a teacher, obviously. He had taught them before, they, before he fed them the fishes and the loaves. But if we look back to verses 14 and 15, the same crowd had declared this of Jesus. They said they declared him as the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus knew that they were about to try and to take him by force to make him king. And now they call him teacher. They don't know who Jesus is. They are trying to figure out who is this man. He's obviously something different, but we don't really want him to be. He's too normal in too many ways. So they're trying to find out who this man Jesus really is. <clears throat> Since that's the case, uh, Jesus confronts them at their heart level. Let's see what he says here. He, say, he responds in verse number 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, this is an indictment that Jesus brings upon them because 
He does not answer their question. He has a terrible way of doing that. He does not answer them as to tell them, hey, I walked across the sea. No. Rather, Jesus confronts them at their heart. What does he tell them? He tells them that they aren't seeking him because of the sign that he did. They're not seeking to find out who is this man? Where did he come from? What does he have that I might need? No. They just want the bread. They just want to be filled. They only want what Jesus can give them to satisfy their physical bodies. Not what can sustain their souls and their faith and their trust in God. This passage that we're looking at this morning, starting in verse number 22, is actually the beginning of the bread of life discourse. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it is referring back to God's provision for Israel for 40 years in the wilderness by providing... What? Manna. Providing manna for them for 40 years to sustain them. To sustain their life. So I went back and I studied this experience of Israel and I was made aware of the reason that the people of Israel was not content for God's provision even in the wilderness. Then Numbers 11.4 this is what it says. Now the rabble, now how would you like to be uh, tagged by the word of God as the rabble? But now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Hear that. They had a strong craving, desire within them. God had meticulously delivered them from Egyptian kingdom that was putting all kinds of... Um, forceful, painful things upon them and miraculously took them out of this kingdom and he was sustaining their lives with manna. But it wasn't enough to curb their cravings. And ultimately, in Numbers 11.34, we see the result of these cravings. Listen to this. God brought a plague among the people and struck down many so that they named that place graves of craving because they, there they buried the people who had the craving. Look, I'm bringing this up because Paul refers back to this in 1 Corinthians 10.6. And this is what he says. Now these things took place, talking about the things of Israel, took place as examples for us, for the church in Corinth, and now even for us today. That we might not desire evil as they did. That's what Paul says. Paul is pointing back to Israel in the wilderness and explains that any craving, any desire, anything that is desirable to us that is more than desirable than God himself, it is evil, it is adulterous, and it is idolatrous. I am afraid that the people of God can all too often be drawn in to idolatrous desires that will lead them away from trust in the Lord. We often crave things that we should not crave. 
We often desire things we should not desire. We often long for things that we should not long for. Not that they are bad. Some of these things are good. But if they become more important than God himself and what we have in him, then it is too much. It has become a craving within us that we want more than God. Paul points out that these often show themselves in three different ways. Idols of the heart, indulging in sexual immorality, and even in grumbling. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself, am I, am I tempted or have I fallen into any of these things? Idols of the heart, indulging in sexual immorality, and even in grumbling. We know where the grumbling got the people of Israel in the wilderness. Don't let the desires of your heart overrule the love you have for the Lord Jesus. Don't think that Jesus is going to give you all the desires of your heart, for he won't because he knows that if he give, gave us everything that we need, it would already be bad for us, but also he, we wouldn't need him anymore. We would think we had all we needed. The desires of our heart rather should make us love and appreciate and adore our Lord even more. They should not seek to replace him. That is what we see in our text. These are people who do not know Jesus and they want the things that Jesus can give them but they want it in the place of God himself, in the place of the Messiah himself. Then Jesus, he turns their attention to the bread that they should be seeking. So let's look at that in verse number 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, will give to you. You see, Jesus explains to them that the food that they're seeking is one that doesn't last. This is a problem. It's not good. Something that is supposed to sustain me, and it doesn't last. Again, he's drawing from the wilderness experience about the manna, and from the other account of the manna in the Old Testament is in Exodus 16. Listen to what God told the Israelites. He told them to gather enough food for the day. Don't gather any more. Gather just enough food for the day that you need. And he also told them, eat it all. He said, do not leave any uneaten food in your tents. Well, they did not obey. God has provided this manna. They did not obey. Some of them left the food uneaten in their tents, and we're told this happened the next day. It bred worms and stank. The next day, that's quick. Even the worms were an act of God. Moses was very angry with the people of Israel because they had disobeyed God. And not only this, but listen to this. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So the part that they did not gather and take into their tents, if they didn't eat it, it would, uh, it would stink and they would have worms in it. It was rotten. 
If they didn't gather it out in the, in, in the field, then when the sun came up, it would melt it. What we learn from this is that God sustained the lives of his people in the wilderness for 40 years, but it was not perfect provision. Hear me. It was not perfect provision. Now, there was nothing wrong with God's recipe with the manna. The manna was what it needed to be. It sustained their lives. The problem was that it would not sustain their souls. It should have been enough to point them to know that God would take care of them every day of their lives. But they didn't trust him. So Jesus, he says, don't turn to the food that perishes. The one that worms can eat and that the sun can melt. Rather, look to the food that lasts forever. And Jesus doesn't point to a particular type of bread, does he? He doesn't say, well, it's wheat or it's rye or whole grain. That's not what he does. What does he do here in our text? He, he doesn't even say that it's going to be manna. No, rather Jesus points to a person. Look what he says. He says, this food is food that endures to eternal life, will be given to you by the Son of Man. So it is a person who will give this food. Don't look to the food. Look to the Son of Man who will give it to you. You want food, but you need someone. You want the fishes and the loaves that I've already given to you, but the Son of Man can give you something that's going to satisfy you forever. And then Jesus explains that this isn't just any old person. It's just not anybody that wants to step up and say, hey, I'll do it, right? I'm a son of, I'm a son of man, right? No. Let's see what Jesus says here. What does Jesus say about this person? He says, for on him... God the Father has set his seal. Now, if there's someone who is able, who claims to be able to provide food, to provide bread that will endure into eternal life, God better have placed his anointing on him. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. That is exactly what has happened. We should and must think back to the voice of God from heaven at a particular event that happened. Many of the disciples saw, others witnessed. What was this? It was Jesus' baptism. Listen to what God the Father, just listen. I mean, we, we don't hear God audibly speak today. They heard him, and this is what he said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right there, the father affirms, gives affirmation, not for himself, not for Jesus, but for the hearers and even for us, that Jesus is my anointed one. He's the one you've been waiting on all of these years. Ultimately, in Jesus' statement, he explains to them that their problem is not really understanding what Jesus is doing and how he was able to get from uh, 
um, one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. No, that, Jesus, Jesus is saying, that's not your problem. You don't need to know how I've done these things. What you need to do is you need to know who I am. You need to know that I am the Messiah. That's what he's trying to get across to them. The crowd then responds, man, wouldn't it be great if they said, you are the Lord. You are the Messiah. Praise God. That's not what they say. The crowd responds in verse number 28. Well, what do we need to do? It says, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They want to know, what do I need to do in order to be doing this work of God? What do I need to do? It's no surprise how Jesus responds to them. In verse number 29, he says, this is the work of God. Not your work. But this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So just like the manna in the wilderness... It, was, it would be God who would be the one who would provide for them through the Messiah, the Son of Man. See, this manna cannot be earned. The Son of Man is the only one who is able to give it to us. So Jesus makes clear that they cannot earn their salvation before God. Rather, the one whom God has sent is the one who has been approved of God and has perfectly done the work of God. So to believe in Jesus is the culmination. That is doing the work of God is to hear Him, see Him, believe Him, trust Him, that this is Him, this is He. That is the work of God. For those of you who are seeking God and wanting to know how to come to Him in salvation, to be saved from your sins, to know that you do not have to worry any longer about the penalty of your sins being that which God will one day judge, please know that you cannot be good enough. You cannot be good enough for God to accept you. It is impossible. You cannot earn God's love. Your sin is far too big to be overcome by any of your works of righteousness. Man, that's hard to hear. I want to know what I need to do, Jesus. I want to know what I need to, how I need to be. How do I need to act? How do I need to live? All those things are very real, very true. We need those things. But not until we understand that our sins have been completely forgiven and taken upon Jesus himself. Believers in Christ, we often struggle in this way too. How do we do that? We believe that our sins have already been forgiven, that our, the penalty for our sins have already been put to death, right? But I think that many times we believe that the assurance of our salvation is based on our ongoing performance. Based on how I'm doing in my walk with the Lord, is how God is viewing me. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Listen, you cannot merit God's love. It's impossible. For Jesus, the Holy One of God, 
has already taken your place. He has already performed for you. He has already done all that needs to be done for you. For your salvation and for your sanctification. And until the day that we go to be with him. So in either case, whether you are someone who's seeking God or a person who is a child of God, listen, fallen humanity is inclined to believe that we can work our way to the good graces of God, but Jesus tells unbelievers and believers that the only work of God that is acceptable before the Father is to believe in Him whom the Father has sent. That's it. That's it. To trust him. It is simple, yet this crowd sadly did not want to place their entire faith in this Galilean man. So I urge you, don't fall into the same temptation of these people. Don't be like the crowd here. Don't be the ones who think that I can trust Jesus, but not, not all the way. We heard from Noel this morning. That was her struggle for many years. And then I give you my all, Lord. Now that Jesus has declared that he is the one whom God has sent and that they should believe in him, now they ask Jesus to prove it. Isn't that great? (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? So number three, you don't need another sign from Jesus. You don't need another sign from Jesus. We're going to look at verses 30 to 34. You don't need another sign from Jesus. Let's look at verse number 30 with me. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, let's not miss that this crowd fully understands. Hear me well. They fully understand that Jesus is telling them, and it's already told them in this passage, that he is the Son of Man that is able to deliver this food that, it, that will endure until eternal life. He has declared it, and they get it. Why do we know that? Look at the words that they use here in verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They are telling Jesus that if he will do a sign, like give me some more bread, right? Give give me some more bread, then they will believe him. If you'll just do a sign that's miraculous, then we'll believe you, Jesus. But they press him a little further. Look at what they say. They, they, They give Jesus an example. He needs an illustration from the crowd. And here it is in verse 31. Our fathers, and here it is, he's pointing back to the manna in, heaven, in, in, uh, in the wilderness. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They are saying, I want you to get what they're saying here. This, this crowd is saying, Jesus, our fathers gave us manna. In the Israelites in in the wilderness, but you say that you have a bread, food that will endure until eternal life. Well, if that's the case, you need to do something even more miraculous. If you'll show us a 
a real sign so that we will know that you really are the Messiah. More than that in the wilderness, then we'll believe you. That's what they're saying. Jesus corrects them about who provided the manna. We want to say, no, Jesus, just tell them. That's not what he does. He, what does he do here? He corrects them. In verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's wanting them to see it is not man that does this. Mankind, no human, mere human, can do this. They cannot provide manna in the wilderness, and there's no mere human who's going to be able to provide enduring bread into eternal life. It's not possible. It's God and God only. Don't you think that Jesus wants them to just, just think back? I mean, he should not even have to even say anything for them to think back the day before, right? I mean, they want an, a miraculous sign from him to show that he really is the Messiah that he says he is, that he can produce this bread that lives until eternal life, that will sustain them forever. And why don't we just think back to the day before? When Jesus took two fishes and five loaves of bread... And he created enough food for a feast for thousands. Do you think that that was not enough for them to be able to see? That this truly is the man of God. The son of man who has come into the world in order to save people from their sins. They just saw it. And they missed it. They just saw it. And they want more bread. Jesus gets to the point here in verse 33 when he says to them, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Most importantly, we see that this bread is a person. He is a person. He is God and he is man. How do we see that? We even see that in our text here. He is a person. For the bread of God is he. He is not some, it is not some wafer. It is not some bread. It is not some manna. No. The bread that endures into eternal life is he. It is a person. A real person. But also, it's a person who came down from heaven. This is the God-man. Fully man. Fully God. This person, this God, this God-man also gives life to the world. This is substantial. Hear me. For Israel... Who was providing for them in the wilderness? It was God. And who was he providing to? Israel. Here Jesus is saying that this bread is not just for Israel. 
No, it is, it is for people all around the world. He has come to not only provide this, this true bread of life for them, but for those who people think are wicked and evil and adulterous. That is who Jesus came for. And praise be to God for that. Why? Because if it were not for that, none of us would be saved. Paul says, and yet were some of you. Yet were some of us. For there is no one, there is no one that is bad enough, terrible enough, wicked enough, that cannot be reached by God himself. But how in the world was this God-man to give, the, give life to the world? How was he to do that? Well, he would do it by coming down from glory. He would step out of the throne room in order to come here to earth to take on the form of a servant, submitting himself to defilement and to shame, even allowing himself to be wrongfully crucified on a Roman cross. This is how he is able to give life to the world. It is by giving up his own life on the cross. So here this morning, I hope you will see that Jesus is the better manna. I hope you see that he is so much better than anything that this world has to offer. He is what the manna in the wilderness was pointing to. The manna was a picture of God's provision for his people to give them life. But Jesus is the bread that never perishes. He never goes away. He never melts. He never will be eaten up. He will never stink. He is the man, the God-man, who is perfect and will endure forever. The death of Jesus for our sins does not have to be replenished every day. He died once and for all. He will not, he will not hand us bread. He is the bread. He gives us himself, which is better than all the kingdoms of this world. This is why he will declare in verse 35 next week I am the bread of life this this brothers and sisters this you person who do not know the Lord the person who is here today and wants to know is this Jesus real this is what will feed your soul forever it will not be the trinkets and the things of this world it will be the Lord himself or you will be deceived for the rest of your life. So did they get it? We've got one more verse. Verse 34. This is the crowd's response. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now it sounds good. We think this might be okay. It sounds all right. But it sounds awful lot like the woman of Samaria. In chapter 4, verse 15, when she said, Sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and to draw water anymore. She didn't fully understand, and they didn't fully understand either. They didn't need bread. She didn't need water. They needed Jesus. That's what they needed. They needed the one who was able to provide those things for her, but they needed to look to him, not to those things. So as our world continues to grow in opposition, in unbelief toward Jesus, do not despair. Do not despair. Because Jesus himself went through it too. And he went through it to show us that he would do it for us. Do not seek to be filled by anything in this world. For ultimately it will disappoint us. It will not fill you. Rather... Turn to, dwell upon, meditate on the great truth that Jesus is our bread that endures to eternal life. Let us live, work, and play in this great hope of the food that will never perish. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray this morning that as we leave this place, that your word will continue to um, work within our hearts. Lord, that our hearts will think upon this, that our hearts will desire, our minds will think upon the truths that you've given to us in your word. Father, we are so grateful that you have provided these truths to us, Lord. And we ask you to continue to guide us in these things. And we pray this in the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen.